So my lesson was don't listen to consumers, tell them. And I think that's very important that innovation is about taking people to a new place, not going to a place which they tell you where they tell you to go. There is the voice of David Gluckman, who spent a lifetime in the brand development business. And he's the author of a book called That Shit Will Never Sell. Welcome to the show. And today we've got a very special guest and another one in our series of Saffirs Abroad. David Glückmann, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Now, da David, you are known for being the creator of one of the best-selling liqueurs in the world. That must be quite a nice reputation to have. Well, it's quite embarrassing, really, because, uh, <laughs> I, first of all, I did it back in 1974, which is a hell of a long time ago. And I went to a, a drinks party the other day, and somebody introduced me as the person who invented Bailey's, which isn't strictly true. I'm one of the people. Yeah. And, um, I'd like to, to be remembered for a few other brands as well. <laughs> But anyway, I have to live with it, and yeah. that's it. So you you were born in South Africa. Tell us a little bit about that background. Okay, well, I think I'm fourth generation South African on my mother's side and probably second on my father's. I was born a long time ago in uh, Port Elizabeth. Our family moved to Johannesburg when I was about six years old. I went to school and university in Johannesburg And then I left South Africa from Durban. I got a job in the market research department of Lever Brothers in Durban. Okay. And I left in 1961, so I was 23 years old and uh, headed for England. Was it difficult to find a job in, in, the, in the marketing industry in those days? Well, I was in advertising at that time, mm. and my objective was to get a job in an ad agency. I landed in England at the end of November, and between the end of November and the beginning of January, uh, it's impossible to get the interview in the advertising business because they're all too busy celebrating. Uh. <laughs> But I did manage. I think I was down to my last five pounds and did manage to get a job with an ad agency, quite a good one, called Benton Bowles in Knightsbridge in London. And um, I worked on Procter and Gamble business. And then I worked on a very exciting project, which was the transformation of Irish butter from a brandless commodity to a mm. brand. And the other thing that was really exciting in this South African context, well, I had remembered being at Ellis Park in 1955 when uh, South Africa played the British Lions. And there was a big gingerhead guy on the wing called AJF O'Reilly. And he turned out to become the general manager of the Irish Dairy Board. So here I was sitting opposite a guy I admired from afar in a crowded Ellis yeah. Park. Uh, when, when I was at university, I think the ultimate prize was to get a job at Unilever or Lever Brothers, as, as it was known in your days. Um, but it was virtually impossible. I mean, they, they, it was like a cult. You had to fit a certain profile, and it was very difficult to get in there. I tried to sneak in by getting a job working for Unilever in Germany, and I thought when I came back to South Africa, that would guarantee me a job 
but it didn't. I could never get a corporate job like that. And I'm quite envious of when I read the book about your career in innovation and you know creating all these wonderful products. What advice have you got for youngsters who want to follow in your footsteps after they've read your book? Well, I think there are various lessons in my book, which I learned sometimes the easy way and more often than not the hard way. One of them is if you try to solve a problem, look for a single answer. In modern marketing these days, people come up with eight ideas and then they go out and talk to consumers. And um, I don't think that works. I think you have to have single answers um, if, if you're going to be true to your particular craft. And I read a piece this morning on LinkedIn because somebody was talking about what they call brand stretch. Can you take a brand from one thing to another? And I think one of the examples they had was Colgate lasagna, beef lasagna. And I suppose uh, you don't knock it, but I, mean, I suppose the biggest jump of that kind was Richard Branson when he went from sex, drugs and rock and roll into an L into the airline business. I mean, mm. who on earth would believe that you could do this? So my lesson was don't listen to consumers, tell them. Mm. And I think that's very important that innovation is about taking people to a new place, not going to a place which they tell you where they tell you to go. But that's very important to me. Sounds a bit like Steve Jobs. Well, I wouldn't I, I, I would hesitate to call myself in the same category as him. And, uh, but I, I, I believe in a lot of what he said. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. There's probably too much, um, too much research and what, listening to what, what consumers do instead of just coming up with something. Um, yeah, that's wonderful. And your relationship with IDV or, or Diageo, as it's known today, how did you manage to get that? to get into a position of influence where, where they trusted you and where they kept coming back to you? Sheer luck. Oh. I met this guy at a conference in Stresum in, in Italy, and I was the only English guy on the course. And um, so I was given the job of taking him out to dinner, uh, which is very pleasant. He was in the drinks business. And just occasionally you hit it off with someone we, I think we thought similar thoughts. Mm. And I said that at the end of the dinner, we just set up a new department to develop new brands. How about giving us some business? And he said, I'd be delighted. And that's really how it started. And I think their management was amazing. And their management, you go into somebody at board level, at global board level with an idea and say, look, I don't think we should research this because I don't think people understand it, but they will come to understand it. So let's do it. And they did it. The, the, the other thing, I think, is that nothing worked for me that wasn't commissioned by top management in the company. Top management recognizes that you can fail and you will fail. And my feeling is that if you're going to fail, which you are, fail quickly and fail cheaply. Mm. Um, I mean, I know some brands, there's a brand in my book called Guinness Light. Mm. And I think they spent a million pounds in 1974 before they even launched the brand. It was a complete and utter failure. 
So I, I think you, you can, you will fail, but fail quickly and don't spend too much money doing it. Mm. Mm. Uh, I think that's. Uh, that's. I think people overthink ideas these days. Mm. David, I started in the drinks business in 1994, and if I think of the number of producers or players in the industry then compared to now, where there are so many craft brewers and distillers that are in a position to come up with brands. How would you go about innovating in, in this day and age? I'd find um, the, the right CEO to, to allow you to commission it. I mean, I think people waste an enormous amount of money testing alternatives. You know, let's look at this uh, fill, let's look at that fill, look at this color, that color. Let's look at uh, different labels, different names, a complete waste of money. I mean, it's just pouring money down the drain, but this is what's called modern marketing. And I'm not sure I accept that. I mean, one of the things that I learned, I think, during my long period was um, how important the product is. I think people just think that you come up with a product that's just like anybody else's and then advertise it that you'll be successful. But I don't think that's the case. And I think I, I cite an example in the beer chapter in my book about Richard Branson in Virgin. He had launched Virgin Vodka and Virgin Cola. And I was engaged to look at the possibility of Virgin Lager. And at the end of it, I went to him and presented the only time I met him. And I said, to be true to what I think your corporate philosophy is, you should produce a product that's distinctive and different. And he completely disagreed with me. He said, that's nonsense. As long as my product can match Budweiser, then the brand will you know, take it to success. And I thought that was complete nonsense. And luckily, he didn't launch it. So um, it would have been a failure. Mm. David, in terms of your gifts and talents, what would you say makes you unique when compared to most other people? Uh, well, I'm probably not unique in any way, but I, I think I was a fanatic. I think I, I, I literally, if I had a problem, I would get to bed with a problem. I'd wake up in the morning with a problem. Sometimes I'd dream about it. I think you have to, if you set yourself the task of coming up with one answer to something, uh, you have to be fanatically dedicated to that uh, to that process. I don't think there are processes for ideas. I mean, I found brand names on the back of lorries mm. when I was in a traffic jam. And, you know, from the Bailey story, it came from the name of a store below mm. our, our office. Uh, but it's also having someone at the other end of the table who says, wow, I think that's fantastic. Mm. Let's do it. I mean, you're only as good as the guy who's buying the idea. And more often than not, or always, that person is paying the bill. I mean, he's committing his reputation. He's committing his money. And I think to, to be successful in innovation, you need very good top management who understand the business particularly well, not just finance people, but people who understand the category in which they're operating. Mm. So I think in my life, I've experienced 
success or successful brands about two or three times. The first one was when I worked for a family brewer called Bavaria Breweries and we launched a light beer. And this was in the, I guess, the early two, yeah, the late 90s. And, but there were a whole lot of factors that came together, like a no-tolerance traffic police department in Durban. Um, mm-hmm. And we experienced success. And what I experienced, and I'm, I've always worked on the sales side, is that I could feel the momentum. And it, it started getting a life of its own. I wonder a lot, so I ask a lot of people questions, what about a light beer, or what about this, or what about that, but I can't create it. And if I find the right people, they respond to that wonder, and they come up with the ideas, um, yeah. which which I've, I've also experienced a, a few times. And then mm-hmm. I think I've also got the gift of discernment, and it's not, not a gift that's obviously very special because a lot of people have it, but I can see if a bottle of gin will sell or if it won't sell. Mm-hmm. And people don't want to hear that. I always say that I want me to call their children ugly. But I'm normally right. <laughs> Have you yeah, experienced right. something similar? Well, my feeling, I suppose, well, I just believed. But I, one of the sad things about developing brands is you pass them on to somebody else. And mm. I mean, I have had no real influence on Bailey's since 1974. Mm. That's a hell of a long time. Yeah. I mean, it's been 50 years. And um, I think, that to me, I've, I've actually been looking back at some of the brands that I've been engaged with. I think that they are a little bit ashamed of Bailey's. They don't treat it with the respect that I think the brand deserves. It sells in 162 countries. Unbelievable. It's uh, hugely successful. It's, I don't know, how many million cases last year. But I just feel the company uh, listens to consumers about Bailey's. I think they have a, a kind of hardwired vision of the Bailey's consumers, some little old granny living up in the north of England, uh, drinking, you know, flushed from a couple of glasses of Bailey's at Christmas. And I think that's the wrong vision. I think mm. Bailey should be treated with the respect that it deserves. Um, so that's looking back on, on, on one of the brands. And I was going to write that into my book, but I thought maybe it would make a better new book. Um, I'm a great product man, and I'm a great admirer of R&D people in companies. IDV had an amazing bunch of R&D people. There's a brand in the book, which you may not have got to yet, called Smirnoff Black. And it was 1990, and it was trying to compete with uh, Absolute, which was emerging, mm. and Stolichnaya, which was also emerging. The Russians were reasonably popular at that time. And um, <laughs> I said, the only way that Smirnoff can compete with absolute is by being a better product and then i thought well how on earth can you make a better vodka it has to be utterly neutral no taste no smell no no, no nothing and i said to the r&d guy i want to produce a smoother vodka i want people to actually taste this alongside absolute and nine out of ten people to say it tastes smoother 
And the guy I was working with did exactly that. And I, I, it was an incredible achievement. Mm. Uh, but I don't think the company believed in it to the same extent that, that, that we did. I mean, you can have all the passion in the world, but if somebody at the company end doesn't uh, go with it, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. David, um, I don't want to give away all these wonderful stories that are in the book. I want people to buy the book and read it. But do you want to talk about maybe one or, one or two of those brands um, and how you created them? Well, I could, uh, there's an interesting South African connection with some of the brands that um, mm. I was involved with because uh, Gilby's in, in, in Stellenbosch was a very active an enthusiastic producer of good ideas. And back in the 70s, they came up with a brand called Coco Rico, mm. uh, which was a ripoff of a brand uh, called Coco Reeb. Oh. Now, the idea of rip ripping off was perfectly good. So anyway, this idea found its way to London, and the London people said, well, no, it's too obvious a ripoff, therefore we're going to do something different with it. So they changed the name to Malibu, which happened to be a name that I had in my cupboard from a previous brand exercise. And they liked Malibu. And they sold it for £561 million pounds to, um, I forget who, one of, the big, one of the big guns. But that came from South Africa. And there are lots of little stories in the book, which I think, um, I mean, most of the ideas that I've had are based on simple common sense, I suppose. You know, you develop a brand for India, and we developed a whiskey brand. But if you went into stores in India, all the brands looked cheap and nasty, and the labels were put on back to front, and the bottles were scuffed. And so I said to the to our guys, look, why don't we produce a range of whiskies in India, which look would would look good on a shelf in New York, in a in a, in a smart bar in New York. Let's give the Indian consumer uh, something to, to to enjoy, something to savor, not some cheap bootleg-looking thing. It's, it's also, I think, it, and they did this, and the brand was very successful. It's called Gilby's Green Label, and but it changed the way lots of Indian companies thought about their brands, and now they all look quite respectable. Mm. So the ideas are, are, are pretty well based on simple observation rather than some blinding glimpse of genius. Yeah. And what I haven't got to that part in the book, so I, I do want to ask you about Sheridan's. Yeah, I'll tell you, Sheridan's was lovely. I, I mean, the process of Sheridan's really knocked me out because I'd be summoned, summoned to Dublin on, on about the 15th of December, near Christmas, Billy's is a very famous coffee house in, in Dublin, established in 1843. And they'd launched a cream liqueur, so the Bailey's people were up in arms. They said, no, we can't let them uh, compete. We want a coffee cream liqueur as well. And uh, we, had a meet, uh, we had a meeting at the hotel right by the air, in the airport because I had to make a quick turnaround. And um, I went to this meeting, but before I went to buy a box of matches in the bar, and they were pulling a pint of Guinness. And it was an amazing sight, the way it, it kind of looked like a giant Bailey's and then separated out <laughs> black and white. 
And I thought, this is amazing. I, I love it. And I suppose this is how an idea works. So I go along to this meeting. And, and another part of the story is I was in the reception of a winery in Portugal three months before. And I noticed in this winery a bottle of liqueur, which is divided into two sections. And one had green and one had yellow, I think. And I remember that my father had a bottle exactly like that back in 1946 in Johannesburg. And so I got to the meeting and there were four or five people there, lots of whiteboards, lots of market data. And I said, look, would you mind very much if I ordered a pint of Guinness? So by this time, Bailey's was no longer the kind of um, gentleman business. It was a high-powered marketing company. So the guy looked at me and said, you know, we don't condone that kind of thing, 10 o'clock in the morning to have a pint of Guinness. So I said, look, please, I'm desperate for a pint of Guinness. So, okay, up it came from service. And I held it up and I said, how would you like a coffee cream liqueur? Well, you drank the coffee pointing to the dark part through the cream, pointing to the light part. And he said, how could you do this? And now I'm making it up as I go along. But uh, the vision is, so I said, well, I can imagine two bottles joined together. One has a very narrow aperture. So when the stuff gets poured out, it comes out slowly. The other one has a bigger aperture where the, the liquid cascades into the glass. And when you pour them, they end up looking like a pint of Guinness, a miniature pint of Guinness or a miniature Irish coffee. And the guy said, turned to me at the, the, that time and said, I think that's fantastic. Can you do it? I said, I've no idea but we can try. And that was the end of the meeting. There was no market data, no interest in anything else. And, um, but, but to me, the, the real achievement was the guy who bought the idea. Mm. I mean, that's a fantastic skill to have. You know, here I am, he's never even met me. Mm. We've not met before. And here comes this bullshit artist, to, to, you know, shooting from the hip. But he bought the idea there and then. I don't think Sheridan's has ever been as good as it could have been. I mean, it was quite a big investment, the, the bottling equipment to produce the bottle, the, the, the filling equipment and everything else. It must have been quite a big investment. And I looked last year, and it's, it's still making a lot of money for the company, although I've never, ever seen anybody drinking it in anger. No. Uh, it's out there. I mean, maybe they're all buying it as Dubai duty free or something. I think I think it's a duty free product. Uh, I've, yeah, yeah. I've never seen. I think I've seen one bottle in my life, and I've always wondered why it's not available in South Africa. But it could be the bottle size is wrong for for our legislation here because we've got yeah. we've got this crazy legislation of a seven fifty bottle versus a seven hundred for the rest of the world. Yeah, well, seven hundred mainly, and. Mm. Um, in Europe, but it's not a big enough market for them to adapt yeah. accordingly. But I think they could have produced a whole lot of other products based on that double uh, filling idea. Mm. I wish they would. There's a, there's a company here that makes a little shooter glass, which is also split okay. in half. And then you right. when you can either buy them pre-filled um, with a foil on top and you tear the foil off and mm -hmm. you drink the... And the popular one here is the spring bookie, which is the green and green and gold so there's a green peppermint liqueur and a and a and a irish cream 
on the other okay. side. So it mixes as, as what they call a spring bookie. Um, mm -hmm. So for the listeners, your website is called thatshitwillneversell.com and forward slash brands. And that's where you can have a, you can have a visual picture of all the brands that, that you worked on. I love the story of Bailey's. Can, can you remember the, the numbers of Pahat? I think it now sells about 7 million, that's 84 million bottles a year. Growth last year was 20% or something like that, or 8%, sorry. Uh, so it, it, it grew quite dramatically. Even in these days with so many, so many rip-offs, if I may call it that. Well, the hardest market to get into initially was South Africa, because South Africa had this vision of themselves as being better than anyone else in the world, it's kind of Texas mentality. So we developed Bailey's and they said, no, we don't, we can't take that. And they developed Cape Velvet. Yeah. Uh, which was, they said, well, we can do it just as well as you can. Well, they couldn't, as it turned out. But, um, well, somebody in South Africa produced Amarula, which has made a significant dent into Bailey's business, I suppose. Yeah, and, and it's also very popular in the in the travel market, I think. Last year, Cape Velvet and a few other brands from the stables were sold to Truman and Orange, a company started by Rowan Librand a few years ago. So I guess there will be new energy behind the Cape Velvet brands. I, I just noticed that um, Diageo uh, sold off Archers. Mm, I saw that, yeah. Which was interesting because Archers was based on the same marketing philosophy as um, Malibu. And we called it Me One, which is different from Me Two. You find something that's incredibly successful in another market and you take it on in every market you can find other than that market. And there was, in the 80s, a hugely successful De Kuiper brand called um, Peachtree, mm. which I think went to 3 million cases in about two years and was an extraordinary success. So IDV then said, okay, we're going to rip off Pe Peachtree and produce it in every other country. So they did, and they just sold it back to De Kuiper Archers. So I guess what will happen is they'll just let it die, mm. uh, because that's what companies often do. Yeah, I read I read an article and they said they want to own the peach liqueur market. That's yeah. So the, now they've got number one and number two. Very yeah. very interesting. What did you say the annual sales are of Bailey's? I think it's about seven million cases now, and. Uh, uh, so it's a huge contributor to the Irish economy. Yeah. And it was all inspired by my work with Terry Gold. It also provided the title for my book because uh, the CEO of the company took a couple of bottles of Bailey's to New York in 1975 to show to our guy in New York, who was a titan of the business. And he looked at it. He said the packaging looked a bit like Vietnam uniforms. And then he tasted and said, that shit will never sell. And I thought, what a good title for a book. Yeah. So uh, he's no longer with us. But um, I think his obituary is in well, one of the links in my, my new book. I think one of the things I tried to do with an e-book was to include live action, take advantage of the electronic medium. So there are loads of commercials, lots of newsreel footage, 
think I've even got Macmillan's Winds of Change speech in Africa back in 1960 to, to be included. They kind of follow my lifespan through the drinks business. And there's some wonderful commercials as well. Have you, have you used the links at all? Yes, I have. Yeah, they're wonderful. It's wonderful that one can do that nowadays, eh? Well, I'm an old man, but I'm very happy to learn new tricks if I can. And um, this was, I said, well, an e-book, how can we make it more e? You know, not just my book um, on a computer, but my book with live action and activity and stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was a lot of fun to, to, to do. If I look at if I look at the brands in on your website, the other one that's uh, you know that South Africans will recognize is Tanqueray Ten. Yeah, um, and you've got quite a nice story there as well. Well, I've got there's an element of disappointment with Tanqueray Ten. I mean, the idea came when um, Bombay Sapphire left the building. The mergers and acquisitions department said. Diageo had too many gins, so they had to get rid of Bombay Sapphire, which they were not happy to do because the brand was beginning to to show. And we had a brief. We said, somebody said, can you within three months come up with a brand to compete? And I remember we were sitting in a, a distillery outside London, and we were sitting on sacks. There were no chairs, so we were sitting on sacks of uh, botanicals. And, you know, playing around with juniper berries and rubbing them in your hands and smelling them. And I said to the, um, the, the distillery manager, can you produce gin from fresh botanicals? And he said, yeah, it'll cost a bit more, but, um, yeah, we can do that. So I said, let's produce the world's fresh botanical gin. Now, that's a process story. Mm. And I don't think process stories are any good unless you – add to them a benefit. So what's the advantage? It's got a fresher, cleaner taste. I wanted Tanqueray 10 to compete, to bring vodka drinkers into the gin category. And anyway, you what you do, you hand it over and it then is taken on by other people. And what they did was, first of all, there was nothing about this notion of a fresher, cleaner tasting gin on the label or in the early advertising. All they had was a ludicrous um, legend on the front of the bottle, which said, batch distilled. Now, what on earth does that mean? Mm. It means that it's a bit like handcrafted. Handcrafted mm. means you're not selling a lot. <laughs> you know, if it can be put together by hand, uh, there's not a lot of bottles being sold. <laughs> and... I'm tired of all that sort of meaningless bullshit that surrounds um, brands, handcrafted, batch distilled. I mean, from Diageo, how big's the batch? Yeah. You know, a million bottles? It's me. It doesn't mean anything. No, no. And Tanqueray 10 was a fabulous product, but it didn't. Um, they didn't take advantage of its benefit. And I think that's a great pity because that's one of the things that companies like Unilever and Procter and Gamble teach you is that you have to have something distinctive about your product. And that benefit should be, you know, we're selling products after all. We aren't kind of selling philosophy or changing or religion. <laughs> we're selling stuff that people drink or, you know, mm. pour milk over. 
<laughs> David, do you see any trends that are interesting and new that that you want to share with us? Well, I can see a trend that's happening. Whether it's interesting or new is, is another question. It's this whole move towards uh, non-alcoholic spirits, which I think is an absolutely extraordinary. I wrote a piece in a magazine called The Buyer about three years ago, and it's still the big, most read article that's ever appeared in the magazine, talking about a brand called Seedlip, which tastes a very little, but costs 28 pounds a bottle, which I think is about 560 rand for a bottle of stuff that tastes like slightly sweetened vinegar, to which you add tonic, so therefore it ends up tasting like tonic, and you're paying 28 pounds for it. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy. I think there are opportunities in this area, but I don't want to blow them quite mm. yet, but I think there are much cheaper ways of giving people non-alcoholic drinks that um, satisfy them. And we developed a brand in the 80s called Aqualibra, which was pursuing exactly that objective. And the key to that sort of thing is don't develop a product that everybody likes. Develop a product that half the people hate because if it's everybody likes it, you're just running into Coca-Cola and you're going to lose. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful, wonderful tip. And, and have, it's like having an opinion or just agreeing with everything. Well, I do quite a lot of talks to young startups, and I, I say the most important thing about your product is that you personally have to believe in it. And I think, I, I think product is very much a personal thing. Yeah. You know, it, 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 there's too much democracy in brand development, and I don't think it is a democracy. I, I think it's a very strong individual view. Mm. And then I see a, a definite trend where the big corporates are struggling to come up with innovation, so they just go and buy innovative products and brands. Well, they do. I mean, I know Diageo had a, a, a unit called Distill Ventures, mm. where they get people to to um, small companies to generate brands and then take them on if they look successful. And that's exactly what we did back in the day. I mean, we were a tiny group. Uh, there was the guy who was my client, who most of the time was an R&D guy, and me. And, uh, and we, if anybody wanted a brand for Korea or uh, the US, uh, we would provide that service. The company would pay for it, and we would provide that service. And I think, I don't think companies have to go and buy them. They could create that kind of unit. Uh, for themselves. Mm. But everyone has this big picture. Everyone wants to sell 5 million gallons in year one with huge advertising spend. And I don't think, um, I don't think that, that works. Mm. But then you know my view on beer, don't you? I was going to ask you, what do you think is the next innovation in beer? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, maybe products that are a bit different from... As I said in that podcast, I think I've been all over the world drinking Brahma beer and Copacabana and, and Kingfisher in Mumbai and um, Tiger beer and Raffles in Singapore. Uh, they all taste the same. And that's why, and that's exactly what Branson said. You know, as long as my product is uh, fits uh, Budweiser, I'm happy. And mm. I think that's wrong. I think people have to start 
um, moving the goalposts, changing the paradigm, producing products that are distinctive and different. I read a piece on LinkedIn a couple of years ago, which was one of the most read pieces I've ever done, I think. It was called Sour Cola. And I said, if you're competing with a massive brand, you have to aim for the ankles, not for the heart, because if you're competing with Coke, what you have to do is find something that says, I belong to the same category, but I'm strongly differentiated. Mm-hmm. And so I probably would do that. I mean, maybe 5% of um, Coke drinkers would be interested in that, but that's a billion-dollar market. Mm. So, but you have to try it. You can't. You can't predict it, and you can spend too much money and time trying to work out how much you're going to sell. But to me, the answer is what we used to do, just get out and sell it. Mm. And if, if it's going to work, it will. Yeah. I'll tell you an idea in my book that I absolutely love, and I didn't put it in that group, was Distilled Guinness. Mm. Have you got to that? No, you haven't. I haven't uh, got to it. I saw the picture just now. Yeah, but this is a really interesting thing. Uh, when Diageo was formed, they set up a kind of uh, joint group between the R&D departments of Guinness and IDV. And they spent six months playing around with the idea of should we or shouldn't we produce a Guinness whiskey? And then the debate became even more ludicrous because they said, should it be Irish or should it be Scott? Now, anyone who's been to Dublin knows when you get off the plane, you can smell Guinness. It's it's an all-pervading brand in that market. And um, after six months of no decision, somebody said to me, look, go along, don't be too rude, and see whether you can help. And um, I sat and listened for about half an hour, and then I suddenly remembered something that somebody told me going around a distillery. He said, first we make a beer, and then we turn it into whiskey. And I thought, that's it. Why don't we distill Guinness should simply be, um, and I said, why don't we simply distill Guinness? Don't think about a Guinness whiskey. If we distill it, the benefits are various. One, you can make it today and sell it tomorrow. Secondly, your provenance is not Ireland or Scotland. It's Guinness. Mm. Thirdly, you can make it taste whatever, however you want it to taste. I absolutely love that idea. Had it on, I presented my findings on my 60th birthday, and I, I almost kind of covered myself in petrol with a match and said, "You've got to do this. Try it. You know, just do it in ten pubs in outside London and see what happens." But they never did. They did all kinds of strategic. But I just thought that was such a beautifully simple idea Mm. and had it been five years earlier we would have done it and tried it and maybe it would have worked maybe it wouldn't Mm. that was a great idea that is a fantastic idea because simply you're not bound by the rules that govern a whiskey producer you can really decide for yourself what you want to do exactly well, one of the things we did, I think, before many people was we created the first Alco Pop. And this was a brand called St. Ledger. And it was uh, basically a, a mixture between orange juice, sparkling water, and white wine. And it was the same strength as a beer. And it came in small uh, unit bottles. And it's for those people who don't like beer, who find beer 
just better like a taste. And there are a lot of them out there. And that was the first Alco pop. And I've got a thing up here which says a sparkling blend of spring water, white wine, and pure orange juice. So we didn't try to give it a category. We didn't call it a cooler or an Alco pop or anything like that. We just described it. And once you do that, I think um, you can achieve anything. I mean, I, for a long time, thought it would be a good idea to produce a wine that where a 75 CL bottle has the same amount of alcohol as a pint of beer. Well, that's our unit. There's a bottle of beer, so. And you, you and your wife can go out, share a bottle of nice red wine. But if you do it, uh, that too, I think it's 4.8 is the equivalence in terms of strength, roughly. And that's enough alcohol to give it the kind of body that a wine needs. But then you, I've, I've played around with it, but I'm, my, my technical abilities are nil. But I've played around adding tannin power, boton, tannin powder, grape skins and grape uh, stalks and stuff like that. But it never worked. But with a good R&D team... Mm. I think a 4.8% wine could be a huge uh, idea. But just forget calling it wine. If it comes in a wine bottle and looks like wine, people are going to buy it as wine. Mm. Also, don't rip people off too much uh, with cost. Mm. What I've seen here now in South Africa, where, for example, gin has to be a certain strength and you can only add certain certain ingredients where the strong brands have come up and they've left off the word gin and they get mm -hmm. away with it. So a blue or a pink Gilby's gin, which you can't sell here because it's got, you know, strawberries in it or something, they mm -hmm. can get away with just calling it a Gilby's. Yeah, I suppose. Well, that's the power of brands, I mm -hmm. suppose, and a um, hundred years investment. And Gilby's founding family of IDV. Mm. When I, I, I launched a product which was a bubblegum tequila. Okay. But so again, the tequila was not from, from uh, Mexico, so I wasn't allowed to call it tequila. But by then, uh, the brand was, was Ariba. Ariba is obviously the associated with a little Mexican mouse, I think. Yeah, of course. And... So I just called it a Reba bubblegum, and I got away with it. Instead, I didn't. Mm -hmm. I didn't need to call it tequila. By then, everybody associated tequila with with that with that word. Yeah, mm. you can do that. I mean, there's a lot of ideas, but not many of them stick. I mean, the gin market's a nightmare in the UK because every year at Christmas, somebody gives you a rhubarb flavored gin, and it's probably still in the cabinet now. You don't. It doesn't change your habits. Particularly, I mean, I, I think that Tanqueray 10 could change people's habits. They get a gin drink, a vodka drinker to switch, or even a gin drinker who maybe found the bitter, dirty juniper hit too much to take. Um, but you just have to have the, the atmosphere and the climate to perfect um, mm. change. David, let's talk about the book. How long did it take you to put that together? Well, it took my whole life, I suppose, to, 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 to provide the material. But yeah. um, it took about six months to write the original book. And um, I'm very happy with the way it's gone. Um, 
but at 500 rand plus postage, it's a bit expensive for South Africans, I would think. But I, I don't like business books. I find them often pompous and quite boring. And I wanted to write a business book that I would like to read. So it, <laughs> it, it has to have lots of stories and a few jokes and some at my expense as well. Happy for that. Yeah. I thought I, I, the Korean story was very funny with the, oh, we developed a whiskey for Korea, which was designed to be served frozen. And uh, we presented it to a group of people. When I was introduced, they all stood up and applauded. They all had dark suits on. And, when I, and I, there was a lot of theater and the lights dimmed and out came the product for them all to taste. And then when we were finished, they all applauded again. Never happened to me in my entire career, I don't think. So we went off to the pub waiting for our man in Korea to hear how the meeting went. And got really excited. He appeared an hour later. And we said, how'd it go? How'd it go? He said, they hated it. <laughs> Absolutely hated it. Um, <clears throat> he said, what they would really like is a 70-year-old J&B. So uh, that was quite, that was, that was funny. I, mm. I enjoyed that but not at the time. Okay. And when you when we first started talking, you started working on your ebook, so that's available now? Yeah, so that's available on Kindle, and you can order it on on Amazon. Okay, yes. We'll put the link in the show notes so that people can purchase it there. And yeah, I think I think it's a wonderful, inspirational book, especially for all the creative uh, youngsters out there. Well, I say to people, if they read my book, um, my Zoom door is open. So if anybody wants a chat, and if there are any business schools or universities out there who are looking for um, a talk about new ideas and new brands. Um, I'm available. Thank you. Thank you for that, David. Thanks for joining us all the way from England. It's a pleasure. And, and thank you for your contribution. It's a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. That was David Gluckman, the inventor of Bailey's Irish Cream and many other fantastic brands and the author of That Shit Will Never Sell. My name is Holger Meyer and this is Drinks World.